Last weekend, I uh, preached a message entitled The Avenger. It's a hot film out there these days, and um, I tried to look at the amazing story that meets us at Easter in the light of that particular lens and God's plan to, to make us part of his force for redemption in this world. And uh, if I were to identify any reason why I feel particularly blessed to be in this circle this morning, it's because I know you are that force. And uh, I have been so impressed, as I said earlier, by the heart of this congregation, this commitment to serve, to love one another, and to be agents of change out in the world. Uh, we're going to pick up the story of Easter again today. Uh, there is a sequel to Easter, and as I reminded the congregation in Oak Brook last weekend, it isn't Christmas. Uh, <laughs> there is an ongoing story uh, of God's continuing work in the life of people, and I want to draw us to a reflection on a particular encounter that Jesus has after the resurrection uh, with uh, his apostle Peter. And so I'm going to be reading today from John chapter 21. It's the very end of John's gospel. And, uh, and bring us back to a moment uh, of a very significant conversation Jesus has with uh, Simon Peter. Uh, to set the scene, uh, Jesus has... Uh, appeared on the beach while the disciples are out in the water fishing. Thank you, Eric. I'm thinking of you as we speak. Uh, and uh, Jesus uh, is recognized uh, by Simon Peter, who comes, leaps out of the boat and comes swimming towards the shoreline. And eventually the other disciples come and they beach the boat and Jesus is cooking breakfast for them. And there follows a uh, uh, an encounter, a reunion of sorts between Jesus and his disciples that's very significant, in which Jesus uh, restores Peter. Uh, he asks him uh, three times, uh, do you love me? And uh, he is playing essentially on the remembrance of the three times that Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. You may remember that uh, particular story. Um, and he gives Peter a chance to re-up, in a sense, for each time that he had denied his Lord. And, um, and then he comes uh, to a point in the discussion that I think is very, very revealing, uh, simply because it, it taps into a, a familiar uh, experience in our lives. And I want to pick up the story there uh, at verse 15 of chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what you don't see in this English translation is that when Jesus says, do you love me, he's using the Greek word, agapio, agape, which is unconditional love. Do you have unconditional love for me? In other words, the kind of love Jesus had demonstrated for the world on the cross, he says to Peter, do you love me? Do you have unconditional love more than these other guys? It's a direct temptation to Peter. Because Peter, of course, had bragged that he would stay with Jesus even when the other guys dropped him. Even if the other guys ran away, he'd always be good. Uh, he'd always stay with Jesus. Um, and each time Peter answers in this, again, you can't see fully what he's, the way he's answering, but each time 
when Peter answers and says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he does not use the word agape. He uses the word phileo, which means, yes, you know I have brotherly love for you. Peter's not going to brag now. He's not going to claim that he's got this unconditional kind of love. He has faced his own frailty. And then the third time, Jesus looks, and I can imagine Jesus with a twinkle in his eye, smiling, and he said, Peter, do you have phileo for me? He meets him right there at the level he can love right now. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I have phileo for you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my lambs. And that's important for us just to recognize because God meets us right where we are. Your capacity to love God, to, to follow Jesus right now, may be far short of what it will be five years from now, ten years from now. That is not troubling to him, to Jesus. If you will simply resolve to bring what you have to him, he will work with that and use you to be a force for good uh, in this world. And then the text goes on and says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. For I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then John adds, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And you may know this from Christian history, that Peter is said to have died by being crucified and not feeling that he was even worthy of dying like Jesus. He had asked to be crucified upside down. And, and so tradition says he was. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, Peter, what is that to you? For this is the disciple, John adds. This is, I am the disciple, he's saying, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. For Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that would have to be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What about him? What about her? What about that new candidate for president? 
What about that person that has posted an even more attractive picture than I could come up with on Facebook? What about those people who seem to be living the better kind of lives that are constantly flashed across the screens of our journey today? What about all those other people out there in the great road race of life? What about them? What about them? There is probably not a single American that has been, not been raised on a diet of, of, of slogans and strategies that are constantly pushing us to seize the opportunities that life presents for competition. And these things surround us every single day. We're taught that if the thrill of victory isn't everything, then surely it beats the agony of defeat. You've heard the rallying cries, I'm sure, as you've gone about your life's journey. Why not the best? Nice guys finish last. Go for the gold. Always stay one step ahead of the competition. You don't need to be wearing an NFL draft uniform to be somebody whose life is constantly shaped by this urge. I received a text this morning from my brother in Texas inviting me to participate in a Game of Thrones bracket challenge to pick who will finally rule on the Iron Throne. And there was some part of me that thought, I don't have time for this. And there was another part of me that thought, I better get in the game. I better compete. I better not let my brothers beat me out in this particular way. Most of us, I think, are given in one way or another to what I call the comparative mindset. It's the tendency to measure our own success our own attractiveness, our own influence, uh, any other attribute you may choose to define, your thinness, your, your popularity by comparing yourself with the performance of the other people around you. In some ways, of course, it is a helpful thing to do this, to engage in a reflective process about how you're doing on the race of life. Uh, competition keeps us uh, stretching. I, I, I walked through the building this morning and I noticed the beautiful arrangements of all of these tables. I'm taking pictures of this because I'm thinking I'm going to go back to Oak Brook and say, we ought to do it like that. It's even better here. Where would America be without something of this competitive mindset? Where would the space program or industry and business standards or athletics or even the ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ be without the desire to seek after the excellence that often gets modeled by other people. Competition is not in itself a bad thing. The problem, I think, comes when the eyes of the would-be winner in life become fixed on the wrong standard for performance. When co competing actually loses its power to help us to grow uh, or to reflect and begins to exert a far more insidious kind of influence upon us. A dangerous uh, range of side effects as I think the morning scripture uh, can reveal for us. Um, like all of us, I'm guessing, Simon Peter uh, grew up wanting to be a, a winner in life. I've never actually met somebody who grew up wanting to be a loser. Uh, you know, I've never seen anybody who said, I'm, I think my goal is to be as mediocre as I possibly can be. 
probably Simon Peter in his era grew up with certain ambitions. It may have been why, in part, he followed Jesus uh, from the very beginning in the hope of, a, of achieving a stature and a legacy and a spiritual maturity that was greater than where he currently stood. It was perhaps a holy ambition that drove Peter. It must have felt fabulous to have uh, a, a man like Jesus call Peter by name. Give actually Simon a nickname. Peter, of course, is a nickname. It means Rocky. Uh, and it was a term of affection. And Peter loved that Jesus saw something strong in him on which he could actually build his church. And it would have been a joy to, to be in that kind of circle of affirmation. Peter's head would have uh, spun with pride sometimes as the onlookers in the crowd, as they moved through these little villages, noticed that Peter was in the inside circle with Jesus. And they sort of would have looked at, at him with tremendous admiration as if he was some kind of a celebrity himself. And so as Christ's campaign then eventually took its final turn and, and moved towards the city of Jerusalem for the last time, it would have seemed to Jesus, or rather to Peter and the other disciples, like a whole new kind of kingdom was just around the corner. And Peter's imagination would only naturally uh, run wild. I remember back in early days when my dad was in politics and, uh, and on a, a election night, there would be tremendous excitement because there was to be the thought not only of winning the election, but of all of the great things that would follow that as he would move into a larger office and have greater influence and we would be meeting more interesting kinds of people. And I can only imagine that, that some of the same kinds of human instincts rose up uh, in Peter's mind. So if he was and all like any of us, he would have thought naturally about how the people back in his hometown would look up to him. Uh, maybe those, even those people who never thought he'd amount to much, well, he would show them now. They would be amazed. He couldn't post on Facebook or social media of other kinds, but the joy of being able to let them know how far he'd come would have been perhaps a motivating influence. Other people might have fallen away from Jesus. Other people might find that going way too tough to stay there, but Peter would be the right-hand man of Jesus all the way. He'd be a leader. He'd be a pillar of the new order. He'd be an absolute winner for sure. And then came the nightmare. Then came that night that turned into such a terrible nightmare. The horrible confrontation with a different kind of crowd. Most crowds that met Jesus were enthralled with him and wanting to, to, to cheer him on. The crowd that came to the Garden of Gethsemane came with arms and clubs ready to arrest him and to injure him. Then came the menacing soldiers everywhere surrounding the disciples and then the shouts of accusation and the pounding in his ears as he ran from that particular place and then later outside of the courtyard where Jesus is being uh, tried, he's asked, uh, if he knows Jesus, and he says, no, I don't know him. No, I was never with him. No, I have nothing to do with that man. As the rooster crowed for the third time. One day would have blurred into the next for Peter. He would have found himself just 
massively dislocated, struggling to make sense of what had happened to Jesus, what had happened to his own faith in Jesus, his loyalty to Christ. Maybe he comforted himself. I think I probably would have had I been in his sandals. I would have made comparisons to other people that we sometimes use when we feel like we've messed up or haven't gone as far as we perhaps should have. At least I didn't sell Jesus out like that so-and-so Judas did, Peter may have thought. Or at least I followed him for as long as I did, which is a whole lot more than I can say for those other guys in the circle of disciples. At least not, I'm not like that person who's always showing off, or I'm not like those kids at school who are cheating on the test. At least I'm not like that person out there who never even thinks of God, or the jerk who climbs over everybody else to get to the top, or the, the terrorist who kills people. At least I'm not like them. How many of us kind of retreat into that at least mentality? It's really interesting how we can make ourselves feel like winners if we focus long enough on the losers that are around us. And it's a good strategy on one level because there will always be people who are less principled, less faithful, less disciplined, less honest, or less of something else that we wish we could be. And as long as we maintain the, this sort of comparative mindset, we can always retreat into some sanctuary of comparative success that will make us feel better about ourselves while denying us the opportunity that our humiliations, our failures, our losses present to us to actually learn and grow. So the first problem with this comparative mindset is that it can lead us into this unhelpful sanctuary of comparative success. The second problem with the competitive strategy for growing and going in life is that it is also a two-edged sword. Uh, just as there are those who will seem to be less worthy than you, so there will almost always be people who appear to be better performers. You know, I, I confront this in myself all the time. People will walk in to the circle of Christ Church and they'll say, wow, what a church. What a great church that God, what a great church God is building in this place. And this terrible part of me will sometimes say, yeah, but it's not like that church. And I'm not like that pastor. Uh, we have these tendencies to ask these kinds of, of questions. Why couldn't I understand what Jesus was about the way John seems to, Peter may have wondered. John always seemed to get Jesus. Why couldn't I get him? Why couldn't I have kept my cool in the garden the way John did? Uh, why couldn't I stay close to Jesus all the way to the cross like Mary and John, and that those other women did. Uh, we ask these kinds of questions. Uh, you look across the room maybe, even today, at somebody 
that you feel is better looking than you and think to yourself, wow, why couldn't I look like that? Or this month you come across somebody who seemed to have the glow of success about them in some way and you think, gosh, does anybody ever look at me that way? Do they ever think of me in those terms? Uh, maybe you think to yourself, you know, I really thought I'd be further along my career path by now. Or I thought I'd be married by now. Or I thought I'd still be married by now. Or I'd be living in a nicer home. Or I would be better known. Or I'd be better educated. Or I'd be more widely traveled than I am. Perhaps as you see how other people seem to be doing, you think to yourself, why couldn't I be less lonely or more self-confident or deeper in my faith or, or more put together like that person seems to be. And social media is our enemy in this regard because these carefully curated images of other people's lives are constantly being foisted upon us, driving us to a sense of comparison and often a negative comparison. Why couldn't I? Why couldn't I? Oh, Lord, what a loser I am. What a loser I am. So as long as we cling to this whole comparative approach to self-worth, we're constantly open to the cut of either side of this two-edged blade of competition. We either sentence ourselves to this sort of stagnant comfort at our apparent superiority in the face of other people's limitations and failures, or, or we sentence ourselves on the other side to this useless kind of self-loathing at our inferiority in the face of other people's apparent successes. But there is a third risk, I think, too. I think of the Sunday school class whose, whose teacher once asked, how many of you want to go to heaven? And one by one, the hands of all the children went up in the, in the class, except for one kid. Don't you want to spend eternity with God, the, the teacher asked the child. And the boy looked around the class at the boys and the girls who had beat him at games or at tests or at others who seemed too weak. And then he replied, of course I want to go to heaven. Just not with this group of people. <laughs> and it works on us this way, this, this comparative mindset. It works on us this way. It not only damages us, it drives a wedge between us and the very people that God has given us to be our greatest allies in the struggle to really grow and to serve. Uh, just think about this. I mean, consider the, the uh, damage done by the jealousy uh, that, that arose between Cain and Abel, uh, Cain for Abel, you know, just, and the damage and the wreckage of, of that relationship. Think of the damage to the united front that could have been formed between Isaac and Ishmael in ancient Israel, and, and, and how that bitter rivalry between these two sides is still destroying peace in this, in this world and, and doing damage as, in as far away as places like Sri Lanka and San Diego, right? That ancient comparative jealousy. Think of the devastation being wrought right now in politics or, or in friendships or marriages or business relationships where, where competition for privilege and position and power just runs amok. Consider all the opportunities for growth 
and for intimacy that get missed when we lose the capacity to rejoice with each other's joys and mourn with each other's losses. Think of all of the damage done by this way of looking at life and ourselves and other people. And then I invite you to picture again that fateful day in the life of our soulmate Peter when Jesus meets him on the shores of the Lake of Galilee after the resurrection. Because even after the gracious restoration that Jesus gives to Peter and his staggering prediction that this stubbornly inconsistent disciple is actually going to go on to a life of faithfulness that will be almost like the supreme example after Jesus's of sacrificial love. Even after Jesus makes this prediction that Peter is going to to give himself in this way, Peter is for one last time unable to let go of this comparative concern. Sure, Jesus, I'd love to do these things, he seems to say, but, but what about my rival, I mean my fellow disciple, John? What about him? What kind of a career is he going to have? Will I, will I have to go to glory alongside John, Jesus? Lord, what about him? So the eyes of a loser in the battle for an abundant life are always going to tend to be upon those around them. That's going to be one of the, the prisons that, that, that the loser in the battle for abundant life will often get stuck on. They'll always be checking to see where the other competitors are, how they're doing, what they're doing, how they're being perceived by others in comparison to me. But in Jesus' response to Peter's question here, we find, I think, the ultimate secret of victorious living. Jesus answered Peter, if I want John to do whatever, he says in effect, what is that to you? You must follow me. Bruce Thielman tells the story of a king who once organized a, a great contest, uh, actually a race uh, in light of yesterday's uh, human race, a race in which all of the young men of the kingdom were invited to, uh, to share. And, and a bag of gold was, was held up and declared to be the prize. And a bag of gold in this particular era was uh, considered to be obviously a massive, massive kind of fortune. And, um, and a finish line was drawn in the courtyard of a palace uh, that was the ultimate destination for everybody. And so toward the close of the course, the runners uh, just coming down the last stretch towards the finish line were very dismayed to find a, a very large pile of rubble, of rocks, of boulders that had been stacked up in the middle of the road leading up to the palace. And fatigued as they were from this very, very long race, each of the competitors valiantly managed to scramble up and over the rocks or to run around the rocks, eventually making the courtyard and crossing the finish line. And just about everybody in the race managed to finally cross the finish line, save one. And everybody milled around waiting for the declaration of the winner, but the declaration didn't come. The king simply sat there waiting. Until at long last, one final runner came across the line. And people noticed that he was bleeding. Uh, he was 
his hands were bleeding, actually, and, and, and lifting up this kind of ragged, chafed, bleeding hand, he said, O king, I am so sorry to be so late, but I found in the road a great pile of rocks, and it took me a while to remove them. No, said the king. This is what I'd hoped for. And the man said, lifting his other hand, Great king, I found beneath the rocks this bag of gold. That must be yours. And the king said, Actually, now it is yours. For that one runs best who makes the way safer for others. Beloved, once upon a time, there came into this world someone who ran the best race any human being has ever run. Who, who ran against the ultimate foe, the temptation to make his own comfort, his own well-being, his own momentary success supreme. And though confronted at every single turn with these temptations to esteem himself in comparison to others, the eyes of Jesus stayed fixed on a single goal alone. And it was, as he put it, to do the will of my Father. Wherever I go, in whatever situation, with whatever group of people, in whatever conditions, I long for one thing. My eyes are on one thing alone. I will do the will of my Father. And with every step of the journey of his life, Jesus showed that he deemed faithfulness to God more golden than any earthly comfort or success. And refusing to skirt painful challenges, he set his hands to clearing away the rocks of sin and death, of hatred and ignorance that are still blocking the road of reconciliation. Though this meant bloodying those hands to do that particular act, he would do whatever it took to make the way safer for those who would follow after him. And on Easter morning, when he walked through the gates from death to life, God declared him the victor, and he gave him the name that is above every name. That one day, before him, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that same day, Jesus appeared to his gathered disciples, and he gave them this remarkable commission. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You want to know what your job description is in life, said Jesus. Just look at the job that I did. Look at the way I lived my life. And every day, you and I are going to go out there into this world, and we're going to be tempted to, to forget that charge. We are going to be distracted. Our eyes are going to be shifted away, and we're going to be drawn in by somebody else by some other picture of success, by some other idea of significance. And we'll tend sometimes in looking at some of these examples to think, well, it's okay to cheat because other people are doing. It's okay to talk behind other people's back because other people are doing that. We will be tempted to speak and to do evil because 
of what other contestants are doing. We will be led to skirt the heavy lifting it takes to keep our vows or to build bridges with our enemies. We'll chase after empty victories because this is the way other people are running. We'll see saints whose pace we can never seem to match and we'll grow discouraged and we'll give up. This is always the temptation. And then maybe, maybe in the midst of that journey, we will stop looking at them for a moment. And maybe we will turn and look into the eyes of the ultimate victor himself. And we'll say, but Jesus, what about them? And he will say, as he has to every generation, what is that to you? For you must follow me. Please pray with me. Our God and our King, we, we recall how Peter himself came to walk the path of faithfulness that ever veers from that wide road we are so tempted to travel, and so many do. We remember how he finally learned to put his hands to your kingdom's work too, saying to us that to this we were called, for Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Give us this single-minded gaze today. Enthrall the world with a fresh vision of that way of reconciliation and service that is still the hope of people from Israel to Illinois. Then move us, Lord, to concrete acts of faithfulness that make the way safer for those who come after us. For this we pray in the victorious name of Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said,